0: Okay. Good morning, everyone. We'll get started here back in our class on Proverbs. Of course, we're in the section of Proverbs not originally penned by Solomon, but curated, no doubt, corrected to one degree or another by him. So we had left off in chapter 23. Um, this section, of course, the the words of the wise, other than Solomon, begins at chapter 22, verse 17. And we had left off about chapter 23, verse 22. So we'll pick back up with just a little bit of a summary and then right into the new material after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. One of the loose and flowing themes in this section, especially maybe beginning in chapter 23, is that things are not always as they seem. So for example, the first two episodes of chapter 23, have you eating with a ruler and all the delicacies are laid out on the table, or eating in the home of a stingy man, which I, I take to be too different, although not necessarily so. And what is laid out before you in both cases is a kind of trap, so be careful and be cautious understand that meals can be a pretext for something else that's really going on and maybe you've experienced this in your own workplace uh, if the boss invites you to lunch it's not always a good thing (laughs) so worth. Paying attention to appearances and reality. And again, as a loose flowing theme, that will continue and carry us through our section today. Just to point out verse 15 of chapter 23, and again we covered this last week, but begins this section with the words, my son. So advice specifically from a father's perspective to his son. That his heart would be wise, and if the son's heart is wise, then the father's heart will be glad. So don't envy sinners is in 17. It appears like they're getting away with it. They're not. Not in this life, and certainly not in that which is to come. So again, looks can be deceiving. It looks as though the wicked flourish that is a deception and it's worth just looking at 17 and 18 once more because this takes us back echoes the theme of the opening uh, chapter of proverbs that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom so let not your heart envy sinners but continue in the fear of the lord so fear the lord and be oriented toward him let the chips fall where they do in terms of you know what one, the stuff one has. But Jesus' masterful teaching on this in the Sermon on the Mount is to consider the ravens and the lilies. They toil and spin, they, or they neither toil nor spin, and yet God gives them everything they need. And Christ has us orient ourselves in that same way, that we would seek first the kingdom or reign of God and His righteousness, trusting that all the earthly stuff will be added unto us. The only other way to live is to live for all the stuff and put God in second place, which in fact doesn't work. Christ also teaches you can only serve God or mammon. You're going to end up loving one and hating the other. It's just the way it is. It's unavoidable. God who designed us, God who knows the world inside and out, has told us it's this way. So whether you believe it or not is completely irrelevant. You will believe it. <laughs> because it will happen. So you love money and God will become receding in your life. You love God and money and stuff will become receding in your life. It's just the way it is. To fear the Lord then sets before us a hope and a future. Now, money sets before us the illusion of a hope and a future. Money says, ah, oh, you're set. Soul, you've got plenty. Eat, drink, and be merry. Your whole life is laid out before you. Just build bigger barns. Remember that parable? God says to such a man, you fool. It's the illusion that wealth gives of, oh, I've got everything I need. I'm going to live a long, happy, prosperous life. I'm going to hand it off to my children. They're going to lead long, happy, prosperous lives. That's all an illusion. And then even then, this life, this life, Instead of a straw man, let's use an iron man. Let's say that everything goes glorious for you in this life. What what then is there in your pursuit of mammon? Decades? Two, four, six? Decades? Literally decades? We're talking about eternity. (laughs) On the other other, uh, cup of the balance, so to speak. On the other cup of the scale. Um, is the weight of all eternity. So to have momentary sorrow in order to have eternal joy, that's what's set before us, as opposed to having temporary joy, joy in this life only, but then an eternity of sorrow and regret. So God sets these things out before us that we would fear him and walk in the way of wisdom. It's ultimately a path that you choose one way or another. And this fear of the Lord connects with 18 um, surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. So again, the sometimes the um, in our in our poetry it'll be like, or in our hymn, in our hymnody, it'll be the deceit of riches. So we just talked about one aspect of the deceit of riches: that if you have it, you'll live happily ever after. You won't. Uh, another deceit of riches is that your hope and your future become bound to this life only. So when it comes time to give it up, you're clinging to this earth. You're clinging to all this stuff. Okay. Um, that is a hope and a future that is absolutely myopic, absolutely short-sighted. It's like saying, I've, I've got hope and a future in tomorrow. How about the next day? Nope, not really. That's what it's like to put our trust in wealth and to be slaves of mammon in this life. This life is just a breath, a vapor, a single day, and then it's gone. So the hope and the future that we have resides in God and in our love for God. Put up with anything else, like Vickers' marvelous sermon today, Endure, St. Paul's words, that. Endure whatever you have to in order to have God and have him ever more fully. These are the true riches. This is the true hope and the true future. And it stretches out unto the ages of ages. Not only this age, but that age which is to come. And potentially additional ages as well. Okay, so maybe that gives us a nice catch up gets us into context at verse 22 which will be the new material you have another statement echoing verse 15 my son so here listen to your father who gave you life which is great it's a line all fathers should use and mothers mothers. yeah mothers seem to use it i didn't add mothers because they seem to use it frequently I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. I've never heard a father say that, but I've heard mothers say that. (laughs) Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. So that's also like not to neglect her, not to... So of course, as you... Age, There is a great temptation to treat mother and father like, uh, use, like used items that are past their worth. And that's a great temptation that we all face. I, I mean, you just look at our society and what do you do with mom and dad when they are past their worth and more trouble than, well, you just tuck them away. That's it. Visit them. Maybe once or twice a year. Uh, the sad state as I come to visit mothers and fathers who are in nursing homes and, and similar care facilities, you get, a, you get a sense right away that there are people there who haven't been visited in a long time. And their, their children are moving on with their lives and could care less. Mom and dad are taken care of, boxes checked off, see you later. Um, that's not how God would have us live. We've talked about this before, so I won't go into it in depth. But just to remind you, there's this cyclical and reciprocal nature of the life cycle. We are cared for by our parents that we might. um, and, And of course, how does this work? So we're cared for by our parents. And usually there's just enough time to raise your own children before you can care for your parents. Meanwhile, your children are going through that same cycle that they would have their own children and care for you and so on and so forth, so that even in a fallen world there would be care and family and love. That's the vision that God sets before us. It's the way it should be. Of course, you know, one of the one of the major problems we have today, especially here in the affluent west, is we don't all live together. This is a very uncommon thing in the history of the world and in globally, just globally and statistically, it is a very uncommon thing that mom and dad would be over here, um, maybe even in the same city, but they'd have their own house over here. You'd have your own house, your children would have their own house. Uh, It is much more common historically and globally that the family is all together and is a multi-generational unit. Now, if we've lost that on account of affluence, we're going to have to work all the harder to compensate for what we've lost. So to reach out to father and mother, and this is, one of the, this is just one of the unspoken diseases of our time, and I know it is because I struggle to do it myself, especially mom and dad. They're back in Colorado. It's like, remember to call. <laughs> You know, remember remember to have meaningful conversations, and that's uh, so important, so wise. So maybe a primary reflection there right off of verse 22 is not to forsake, forget, despise father who gives us life, mother who cares for us, but has since grown old. Yes, sir
1: my observation is important to also know that it's not always the children who are part of the warehousing out issue. It, the parents say, I would never put this burden on my children. They, they don't want to receive what the children may want to offer. So it's a, and I'm working on that myself, being able to be open to and receive uh, what they would be interested in doing. And we say, oh, no, no, I would never. So mm-hmm. I think that's something to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. And and I understand, too. I mean, let me add this in. I understand that it's a complicated issue and there's family decisions that have to be made. And if the children are living in a single bedroom apartment because that's all they can afford in this day and age, that may be an impossibility. So understand me correctly. I'm not trying to heap impossible burdens upon people. I know that different circumstances are, in fact, different. There's no universality to how that plays out concretely. But at the same time, the principle remains, right? That principle to not um, forget your father or despise your mother in her old age, to honor them as the fourth commandment teaches. That's a lifelong um, gift that God gives us. Even when father and mother are unfaithful, even when father and mother have been nasty, you know, again, not... There's not one-size-fits-all here, so don't hear me saying that. But as a general principle, it is all the more of a good work to love those who are unlovable. Strictly speaking, that is a Christian virtue and an exclusively Christian virtue to love the unlovable, to love without merit, to love when in fact there's maybe demerit. That is a high um, good work and uh, true good work that God gives us to do. Okay, was there another? We're okay. Let's power on then, so we get past the first one. 23, buy truth and do not sell it by wisdom, instruction, and understanding. So, I, I, I mean, I love this, because like, what am I going to buy with my money? I'm going to buy pleasures here is the opposite. By wisdom, and as, now this probably doesn't say like, "Hey, you got to go pay for university." That's not what, <laughs> that's not what's being stated here. But w- where do you put your labors, and what is the the thing that you would exchange your labors for, or what in fact do you labor for? Would be a more direct way of putting it. Labor for. Buy truth, and do not sell it. So the first thing we should note, just unashamed, is there 's a cost to obtaining truth and likewise retaining truth because otherwise you could sell it off have have it temporarily easier in the long term, much more difficult. So buy truth and do not sell it. buy wisdom and instruction and understanding let this be your highest value you know especially because money is just a means to an end so what is that end there was this line that struck me as we we were singing it great hymn Lord thee I love with all my heart I've I've heard criticism on this hymn and it's worth addressing because it's just it's ridiculous Lord thee I love with all my heart well I don't love the Lord with all my heart so I can't sing this then neither can you confess the Apostles' Creed. Because it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and you don't really believe with your whole heart, so guess you can't confess the Apostles' Creed. A bunch of nonsense. So obviously, this is giving voice to the new man, both in the Creed, I believe, and here in this kind of uh, pious confession, Lord, thee I love with all my heart. It's an emotional statement, not a dogmatic statement, also for the semi-autists that seem to be attracted to that particular kind of theology. But listen to this line, Lord, Thee I love with all my heart. I pray Thee ne'er from me depart. With tender mercy cheer me. Earth has no pleasure I would share. Yea, heaven itself were void and bare. If Thou, Lord, wert not near me. I mean, right there you got to pause, because it's saying heaven isn't just like Disneyland when you die. The heaven of heaven, the paradise of paradise, is to be with our Lord. If our Lord like, took a vacation and vacated from heaven, heaven would be no different than earth or anywhere else. be terrible. Wherever the Lord is, there is heaven. And it's a beautiful comfort because it means when the Lord draws near to us, we already have a foretaste of that heaven to come. Come unto me, ye weary, and I will give you rest. I mean, that's a right now reality, and it's a future reality in its fullest fulfillment. So, I mean, just great, great lines to open this hymn with. It continues, and should my heart for sorrow break, so like all of the burdens of life, the tragedies and sorrows break my heart. My trust in thee can nothing shake. So it's like God constantly gives us more than we can handle, God constantly brings us down to nothing. God constantly is destroying, but he's doing so in order that he can build back up and restore and make new. He's ever pruning that in due time we would grow forth and blossom in greater abundance. So no matter what pruning may come, no matter what sufferings may occur, occur The call for us is to endure in faith. And that's the statement. My trust in thee can nothing shake. Thou art my portion I have sought. Okay? I think that line's self-evident. Thy precious blood my soul has bought. Lord Jesus Christ, my God and Lord, my God and Lord, forsake me not, I trust thy word. What a beautiful reflection because we are, as the scriptures say, bought purchased not with gold or silver but with the precious blood of jesus he has bought us first and therefore we buy him Uh, this is how the pearl of great price for example has been understood uh, dominantly, the dominant reading in the history of the church. All the church fathers, the man who sells everything he has for that pearl. Now, I don't really care if you're like part of the 20th century theological crew and you like the idea that it's Jesus who pays everything he can to buy the pearl, or the parallel pays every gives everything he can to buy the treasure in the field. That's fine. I, I've got no quibble there. But the way the church has read those things historically for 2,000 years almost monolithically is that it's the christian who finds the pearl of great price which is the gospel it's the christian that finds the treasure buried in the field and you're willing to give up everything for that because you have found your god you have found your savior so we buy him because he first bought us we love him because he first loved us and this hymn is largely a meditation on that second half of the equation our love for him because he has so loved us in christ jesus our buying of him because he has bought us with his own precious blood so we too buy that blood at great cost and lest we get all abstract with this Read the red letters in your Bible. Jesus is always talking about the cost of remaining faithful to him unto death. Incredible cost. And I mean, so numerous I can hardly count. He says it almost every other page. He's talking about the cost of being his disciple. And he's doing this because he is wisdom incarnate. And he knows that the second... The Holy Spirit works faith into your heart, and he is yours and you are his. Now your flesh flares up, the sinful nature flares up against you. It's inflamed by the world that is constantly opposed to God. Indeed, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And it flares up the sinful nature. And the devil is behind it all, along with all his host trying to flare these things up so that all of the attacks of the devil the world and your own sinful nature are enhanced and increased simply because jesus is yours and you are his if you don't think there's going to be a cost associated or difficulty in experience or agony required you're just not listening to jesus and the great comfort of that, then, is that when we experience these things as Christians, we, we don't have to be shaken, because our very Lord whom we are following is the one who has promised us these things will happen. So it's like, hey, I'm on the right path. You know, it's like when when some great suffering happens, it's not like, oh, I've gone the wrong way. Guess I should, you know, go seek the easy way. Uh, that's That's God's way, right? No, God's way is the way of truth and that truth is going to come with suffering so when the suffering comes expect it and endure it and as paul so wonderfully says as vicar preaches today that endurance actually has an effect it produces character and that character produces what is it now it's endurance it's suffering produces endurance endurance character and character hope and that, that just ties in beautifully with this section where, again, in verse 18, we're talking about a future and a hope. And here, in a few verses later, um, in twenty we're going to see these themes recur. Future and a hope by clinging to Christ, no matter the cost. Okay? So... Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Let's pause there. Let's see if you have questions, comments, any thoughts. Yeah. Pastor,
1: you, you mentioned that verse 23 isn't about going to to college. But I can't help but notice the fact that nowadays, when we're told to go to college, it's so that we can get a better career and earn more money. It used to be, time was, that the reason you were supposed to go to college is so you'd learn useful things, true things, so you'd be a better citizen. Now, what you learn there isn't truth and wisdom. So, you might even think that this verse is against college uh, because Ah, now, you know, you go to college and what you learn for reasons that are both range from crass to subtle, the... uh, whatever crazy idea your professor has. Right? Right. right. So, you know, there is actually (laughs) some application here.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And it is a shame. I think we could spend the rest of the morning lamenting that, but part of of it is egalitarianism, this radical, everyone's equal, everyone's the same, which is one of the most sulfuric lies of the devil. Uh, But And also then this hatred of hierarchy, which is just the other side of the coin, but college ought to function within a society and indeed originally was set up to not to be for everyone, but to educate educate those who would be faithful leaders while everyone else goes about the everyday business of life. Now, that hierarchy just simply exists whether we want it to or not. Even Christ talks about this hierarchy that he uses the language of highborn and lowborn. Very frequently, your modern English translations erase that over with platitudes and niceness because they don't want it to appear as though Jesus were saying there is such a thing as highborn and lowborn people. Uh, but in fact, there are. Okay. Um, how many families have ruled over California and are all intermarried and inbred and so on and so forth. Um, it's just a reality of life that um, there are the haves and the have-nots in many ways. So college, of course, is set up um, to give us leaders. And now it's like everybody goes, well, everybody's a leader. Well, if everybody's a leader... No one is, (laughs) which is about where we are. So yeah, and and Dale, I know that's aside from your comments, which were wonderful. Thank you for adding those. Okay, um, anything else we want to touch on? All right. So then, 24, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will will be glad in him. So this is the encouragement to fathers, I think, in the first place, as we read this, to not give ourselves over to the flesh, which is lazy. The male flesh is lazy by nature and doesn't want to get involved. It do, by fallen nature, this is what I mean. It doesn't want to get involved. It doesn't want to do the hard work. It doesn't want to... Um, You know, when you're hammering something to break it, it might take a few strikes. Those first two strikes feel impotent. But it's then the third strike that finally breaks the rock, let's say. Okay, so a lot of fatherhood, I mean a lot of being a male period, but especially acute in fatherhood, is you've got to keep striking the rock. There's, Look, it bounced off. There's nothing. Okay, I'll just give up and go home. Try to family devotion, hammer bounced right off the rock, I'm done, that's it. Try again in 10 years. The call to masculinity and the call against our, uh, the laziness of our flesh is to hammer and hammer and hammer knowing that the next one could be the break. Consistency, effort, Uh, persistence in the face of apparent futility. This is what we're called to. And that's especially true in raising children and especially true in raising sons. So keep it up. Do what you can do. Do all that is within your power. You'll never regret it. You'll never say, oh yeah, I really wish I spent less time uh, trying to help my children um, and more time on my iPhone. Less time conversing with my children, building those relationships, correcting them, doing the difficult work, and more time listening to strangers rant on some social media. The exchange from a heavenly view is absolutely clear and 100% an easy decision. We just have to have the wherewithal to make that decision and persist in it. So then, a righteous son doesn't just pop up out of the ground, You don't sit on the couch and drink beer, whether it's Wittenberg beer or Coors Light, and just arrive with a son who's wonderfully righteous and wise at age 18. It just doesn't happen. You're going to have to persist. And as you persist in that, and you see the fruits bear themselves out, the fruits of righteousness and wisdom in your son, then it is cause for exceedingly great rejoicing and gladness. You understand that the Lord used you as a tool, to him be all glory, and that the Lord himself is the one who gives righteousness and wisdom, none other. But the Lord does work through means. And the role of the Father, contrary to everything the world is telling us, contrary to all of the sitcoms and cartoons for the past 30 or 60 years, the Father is the absolute most important part in this role of, of where his children end up. Um, you can, and, and if your father led you down the wrong path and you found the right path, well, God be praised and break the trend. Okay, um, Don't pass that on. Um, pass the good that your parents did for you on. Leave the bad behind and pass new good stuff on. Um, but this is the legacy of fathers is to, is to pass on wisdom and righteousness to their children. The world tells us that fathers are, uh, you know, Homer Simpson and um, just pick any, any single sitcom out there. The dad is fat, inept, verbally abused by his wife and children, thinks himself an idiot, uh, couldn't teach anything, couldn't do anything. He's basically just there for a paycheck for the family. That's the view of masculinity. Um, do you want to know what that would be classically? He's the slave. So he's the slave who's doing the manual labor that everybody kicks and bosses around. Well, meanwhile, who's the head of the household? Interesting. The mom. And if the husband were to get too uppity and try to take his rightful role as the head of the household, what would the mom, equipped with the power of the state, be able to do? No-fault divorce, and you will continue to be a slave now by legally binding ruling of the court look how poisonous this is so then if you want to even be more cynical the government desires to be the husband in our households the wife the mistress the man the children next in line and the man the mere slave so you have to understand men that it's not only feminism and it's not only wives who want to wear the pants in fact, properly speaking, that's a symptom of a state that stands behind enabling it and t- staking claim on your wife. That's the reality. So if you really want to vent wrath, uh, do so with your votes and do so uh, with, your, um, with your words and vent it against the state that has set up this whole abominable system, this anti-family Um, That is completely upside down from what God gives us. Okay, so the Father uh, then—this is the promise, great—and the you know the thing that it gives us is this: just this sense of the Father of the righteous will greatly rejoice; he who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. It's like this strikes at the core of our purpose as men. Our purpose as men before God is to. Uh, ever draw closer to him and be fulfilled by him but our chief callings of God in this life to be uh, husband to be father those core callings um, right here in view verse 25 then obviously this is kind of angled towards sons in the sense that they go well I want to be righteous I want to be wise so that my father who cares for me cared for me so much that he will have occasion to rejoice and occasion to be glad Um, then all the more verse 25 let your father and mother be glad let her who bore you rejoice so here's the admonition then for children live in such a way that your parents are proud of you and or live in such a way that your parents will be proud of you in heaven (laughs) right you you may be too righteous and too wise they may be too worldly and they may despise you in this life. Then live that they will be glad and rejoice in you from heaven's vantage point. That They'll go, oh, how, how I misunderstood. How wonderful and how blessed. So great encouragement then to um, live in such a way as to make uh, godly parents are, of course, in view here. It's not saying, you know, if you have wicked mother and father, you should live in such a way to make them rejoice. No, that's, that's not what's in view but let your mother and your father be glad let her rejoice that you were born and that through her you came into the world so just um great admonishment here for fathers and by extension uh, mothers and then children as well i see someone trying to get in a question yeah or comment yeah please
2: yeah pastor if we could go back a little bit um I just want to make the comment that it's interesting to me that we see, and I'm going to take the heat for this, so because nobody's going to be happy. Um,
0: My heart is prepared. We
2: see, we see on TV, Riley Gaines all over the place, you know, complaining and wailing about what's happened to female athletics with the uh, uh, gender confused men that are joining women's athletics. The men beating up on the women yeah. while the feminists cheer. It, yeah, and and I'm not for that. Uh, but, but if you go back 50 years when Title IX took over and wiped out many of the men's sports, mm-hmm. uh, nobody was screaming about that. And then we've had the last 25 years of uh, the Simpsons and uh, South Park, and nobody's right. screamed about that, and and yet Riley Gaines will say, "Where are the men? Why aren't you sticking up for me? Why are you know?" Yeah, and it just frustrates me to no end that this started a
0: long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an an entire lifetime of catechesis and indoctrination, and um and just an inability for us to keep up as, and I say us. I mean, like, generations of parents, but especially, the, like, say, the last two. Uh, or maybe parents going back 60 years is really more what I mean, or thereabouts. An inability to keep up with how rapid technology is changing and what's being set in front of our kids. I mean, my, my parents very innocently said would set us, from time to time, not a lot, in front of the TV... And my sister and I were marveling just this last Christmas when we got together, like the stuff that we saw on TV, now it's tame by today's standards, but even then it's like if mom and dad knew we saw that, they would never have let us see that. <laughs> so they, that would have been the end of the TV. So that, that's part of what's happened too, is uh, we have had... Uh, generations of children catechized through technology in ways that we have not kept up with and that we need to just become ever more wise to the content you know and it used to be it used to be so you would watch a cartoon like your average cartoon as a little boy something like when okay i'm dating myself here no doubt but something like he-man or gi joe or Um, My little brother was into like the Power Rangers and really embarrassing stuff. I like to remind him of that. But, (laughs) but But the thread that runs through all of it was good versus evil. There was very clear good, very clear evil, very clear heroes and very clear villains. And the heroes always followed what we would call natural law. And the enemies were always opposed to that. They were always doing some dastardly thing okay but how then when i turned on the tv with my kids even starting very young how had it changed there's almost nothing with good and evil anymore and even where it's good and evil it's very frequently like yeah evil but if you understood the origin story you wouldn't maybe think so so everything's always being redone you know we've we we do not have just darth vader being an evil dude we've got to go back and understand his sob story and how he ended up being an evil dude um we don't just have uh, what was it um malevolent was she the witch in disney maleficent. uh maleficent? maleficent maleficent thank you thank you maleficent now we've got to go back and get her little backstory and care about her and feel bad for her um, the same thing is happening in the wizard of oz with the witch and just on and on it goes it's but it's what you need to realize it's a deconstruction of the of the good and evil so that these categories don't So anybody who thought that there was such a thing as good and evil is hopelessly simple and naive. if only you understood more deeply, you'd see that there really is no good or evil. It's all just as the Jedi say, relative. Only a Sith deals in absolute, which is when I absolutes, which is when I discovered that Jesus is a Sith, not a Jedi. And thus I donned my bla- all black with new conviction. the cape comes out i'll have fully evolved (laughs) but but look how media has poisoned all of this stuff the good guys are in fact the relativistic bad guys objectively so we have had this media influx with television and now of course it's internet and maybe in 20 years this will sound antiquated because it'll be the neural link or whatever but these are the ways in which true indoctrination, true catechesis is happening. We have to be aware of that, make parents aware of that, and be, as Jesus says, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Up to and including, like, no, you're not going to have a smartphone with, or a phone with internet access until you are out of my house, and then you can handle that. That's on you. Right? But but far be it from me to hand you this portal of demons and and tell you like okay use it responsibly. Okay, so yeah, Bob, did that? I, I hope that that ties in uh, with your with your commentary. Yes, please.
2: Just to add to what Bob was saying, he reminded me that back in 1973, there was a. Match that was invited by the females, the battle of the sexes with Billie Jean King and Bobby, what's his name, Bobby Riggs. Yeah, yeah. So they wanted this.
0: Oh, yeah, this is a long time (laughs) in the making. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah, it's ugly. Well, it's leading to ugly realities. I mean, God forbid there's ever a draft, but if there were, um, it would be our Christian duty to refuse that our daughter's, and if you're young enough, your wives, um, would be drafted. You just have to refuse that, no matter what the cost is. It's an abomination. Um, yeah, ugly, ugly fruits are coming from this very ugly tree that was planted many decades ago. So, uh, yeah, be, be encouraged by what God has to say here, encouraging fathers, encouraging children or a son explicitly here. I mean, obviously, children of both sexes and mother and father can be used, um, can be kind of seen here collectively. 26, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. So here is a godly father who has conformed his own heart and his own ways to the way of the Lord and the heart of the Lord. So a father is not going to have anything to give to his son unless he himself has received it from our Heavenly Father. Then receiving it from the Heavenly Father, he says to his son, let me give you this. So give me your heart, because he's going to fashion that heart give me your full attention, give me your soul, let your eyes observe my ways, use me as your template and pattern. Now, sure, that can be pro and con, because there's no father on earth, it's perfect. Every single one of us sin and fall short. So what do we do? We humble ourselves, we repent, we return to the Lord for forgiveness, and and we show those masculine traits If you get knocked down, that's fine, get back up. And that kind of, I, I'm on my way and I'm on my journey to heaven and I can get knocked down 10,000 times on the way there. Who cares? I'm still going to get up and take another step toward heaven. So th- I, this is, sh- shouldn't be taken tritely when it says, let your eyes observe my ways. That's like the good and the bad and how I handle the bad and maybe even that especially. But the priceless reality of a godly father and a godly um, a godly sun on display here okay so what is going to be the content um, again uh, things are not as they appear and the first example of that here in this section 27 and 28 for a prostitute is a deep pit um, deep pits were dug to hunt animals um, you can think of a really deep pit dug with uh, then a covering on it so it doesn't look like a really deep pit, and an animal, you, you do this on a trail, on an animal trail, and then the animal sees, oh, it doesn't look like anything's there, and they walk over and they fall into the pit. So the same thing here, like, oh, just a prostitute, whatever, who cares? Um, no, that is a big deal, and it's going to have effects on you in your body, in your mind, in your soul. You're going to fall into a pit whether you think you are or not. So, things are not as they appear, uh, even what many men might consider a minor discretion is in fact a major one, a deep pit into which you fall. You are being hunted would be another way to put it, and the hunter is demonic, parallel to that, an adulteress, so here a uh, less um, i mean less drastic than a prostitute, but really kind of sisters in sin. Um, Because an adulteress is going to break up your marriage, break up her marriage. An adulteress is like a narrow well. So a well you would think is a good thing. But a narrow well is a particularly dangerous thing. So whereas the first is a trap, here is just carelessness in view. So you can fall into great sin by being entrapped. Or by just not being On guard, not vigilant. You can be walking and fall into a narrow well from which there's not going to be an escape. She lies in wait like a robber, like a thief, and increases the traitors among mankind. So look at the contrast between father and mother and verse 25, let her who bore you rejoice. Now look at how prostitutes and adulteresses reproduce. They reproduce by increasing the traitors among mankind. So, Things are not as they appear, and what might be an attractive woman batting her eyes is, in fact, spiritual doom, and you may well find yourself becoming traitorous in your heart. You know, traitors shouldn't be taken lightly. Ultimately, Adam and Eve's original sin is a sin of rebellion or a sin of treason against the high king to be against the family of God. So that's, um, this is a path that leads you uh, into antithesis with God and the things of God. Alright, um, so things are not as they appear continues in 29 and following. Uh, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? those who tarry long over wine those who go to try mixed wine okay so here uh, a very cautionary view of alcohol elsewhere alcohol is is given by god to gladden the hearts of men. it's meant to be a good gift there's it's fine i mean it's great it is uh, you know if if god didn't want us to eat meat why did he make it so delicious God didn't want us to drink wine. Why does it exist? Or uh, what's, how's the quote go? No, it's usually beer. Beer is the proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Uh, well, so um, jokes aside, and, and we have um you know we have a, a real difficult um, relationship with alcohol here in this country. Of course, we we have for a long time. And um, there there's great warning. Because alcohol that just looks pleasant and looks like fun and games has has many dangers associated with it. So in the same way that if you're going to sit down at the table, you have to be careful of what is being served to you. You have to be on guard. So too, when you're thinking of alcohol or one of these apparent gifts, and it's a true gift, you have to be on guard because there's a kind of treacherousness attached to it on account of our sin. I mean, the wine itself is innocent. It's a good creature of God. But on account of our sin, there's a a sort of treacherousness that we bring to the table. So, um, tearing long over wine or going in to try mixed wine, uh, it continues. And you'll see here um, in specific what this proverb is about. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. I always think of the song Red, Red Wine. (laughs) Goes to my head, or however that goes. (laughs) Okay, so it's intoxicating in the same way that the prostitute or the adulteress can have a sparkling, intoxicating, uh, titillating effect on the soul and then bring doom, so also uh, can alcohol in all its forms. You know, it's probably right that they don't, or uh, at least they didn't for a time, um, advertise alcohol on. TV? Do they? I think they do now. But they didn't for a while. And it's a good idea because all they ever show is the good and the fun. And they never show the consequences that can come without being on your guard when it comes to drinking. So appearances aren't always the way things in fact are so thus the admonition do not look at wine when it is red when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly in the end it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder and given our culture probably everyone in this room has had some experience with that if you're over 21 of course your eyes will see strange things indeed not least of which are the proverbial beer goggles, and your heart utter perverse things. And indeed, that's true. So, um, in vino veritas, and wine, there is truth. And sometimes the truth of our hearts is ugly and perverse, and out it comes. So the you know this the gift of. The gift of alcohol is it, that it's that social lubricant. It just kind of like makes conversation easier and everybody's getting around having a good time and all of that's great. But then when abused, it becomes that, that inhibition is so lowered that all of a sudden all kinds of things come out that one would never actually say in a state of sobriety or in a state of a mild buzz or other, otherwise enjoying the wine. So you can enjoy wine, but you gotta have to keep yourself. You have to guard yourself against its abuse. And it has a kind of call, doesn't it? It has a kind of "just one more." You're feeling good; you'll feel just a little bit better. But it does this, you know, one step after another, one drink after another, until you're like, uh, "Why is the room spinning?" This was a bad idea. And that's certainly then the poison where it bites like a serpent and stings like an otter. You find yourself poisoned by it. Your eyes will see strange things, your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. Talk about the room spinning. Like one who lies on the top of a mast. It's really probably the rigging So as you know, you're rocking back and forth. So this is a father telling a son, you know, hey, be careful when you drink, or else you'll experience these things. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. So the uh, wine is a brawler, the scriptures say, and that's because it again it lowers inhibitions and it can make. I mean, I've seen this in women too, so maybe it's more men, but women too. It can turn people violent, and yet violent and insensible. So that there's a belligerence, and I've seen people get significantly injured when they're intoxicated, and it's as if they don't feel it. So these things, they struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? Because you're realizing you're in a stupor, uh, dream-like state. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. <laughs> so that's the that's the call, the siren call of alcohol. And where you drink it, you have to be able to say, okay, this much and no further, I'm good. Um, or pace yourself out. And of course, if you um, are just given where you can't pace yourself out or can't stop, then you're in a position where you need to abstain. You know, I know we call that alcoholism or whatever. That's a really slippery title and... You know, again, I'm not trying to undermine AA or anything like that, which is by and large a good and very helpful program. But just be careful labeling yourself with things the Bible don't label you with. So I'm an alcoholic. Careful, you're a child of God who has this particular weakness, this particular weakness or susceptibility to a temptation You need to guard yourself against that weakness or susceptibility. You need to understand um, what it is that you're looking for in that drink that you're not finding it. Okay, Just be really careful not to label yourself something that the Bible doesn't label you. Uh, And yeah, so alcohol is just not for everyone. Only some people can tolerate it. And to learn your own tolerances is wisdom. All right, next week, chapter 24, we'll carry on with this theme Not Everything Is As It Appears. The Lord be with you.